last year, the Postico Chronicles crew brought our recording equipment and went to the downtown core of Edmonton. And there we went up to the top floor of the ATP Financial head office to speak with Dave Mowat. He was the CEO of ATP Financial for 11 years. For those who do not know, ATB Financial is a financial institution that provides services to over 753,000 Albertans and Alberta-based businesses. Before that, he was the CEO of Van City, the largest community credit union in Canada as of 2017. If you live in Alberta, your life was most likely influenced by him in some way, whether it was in the form of financial services, whether it was a commercial on your radio, or the 2015 Royal Review, or even the lighting of the high-level bridge. We sat down with Dave to talk about what it means to be a CEO of a bank, and we learned a bit about what it means to be a leader today. This is Postico Chronicles, and I'm your host, Matt Falk. Thank you so much, Dave, uh, for letting us into your office this morning in Edmonton. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for uh, having me. You guys are a fast setup. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we uh, we try to be. Um, so I know the Alberta public has probably seen you a lot on commercials and on the TV, but could you tell us a bit about Dave Mowat as a child growing up? You know, I'm, I'm an Alberta boy. I was born in Calgary, and then we moved to Edmonton, so I grew up in Sherwood Park, and... Uh, I ended up going to UBC. The entry requirements were much lower than U of A. Um, so I uh, went to university there, got my first uh, job there, and then I've worked across the country, and I had the opportunity to come back to work for ATV 11 years ago. What was your uh, first job? Actually, I had a uh, beer bottle return depot, and that yeah. was when you got 25 cents deposit for 12 beer and I would sell them for 31 cents. So I'd make six cents for every dozen empties I brought in. So I did that for the whole summer when I was 14 or 15. That's a, that's a good, that's a good markup to, <laughs> to all you uh, entrepreneurs out there. There you go. UBC, could you tell us a bit about that time there, like moving away from home for the first time, right? Yeah. Well, UBC was a, you know, I think all the universities then were you know, kind of struggling to find themselves a little bit. They have a uh, a great business program there. You know, to be tell you the truth, I wasn't the best uh, student by any stretch, but, you know, I made some friendships that have lasted forever. I learned a lot about uh, life. And, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, we'll maybe talk later about people in their careers, but I think learning about running organizations, organizing people, managing people, getting along with people, convincing people of things. You know, I think that's probably what I took away from university the most. So, I mean, let's talk a bit about your time at ATB. Um, among your duties as a CEO, you know, week to week, what was one thing that you kind of hated doing and what was something that um, you loved doing, like the best part like of being a CEO? Right. You know, I think the very best part about being a CEO is meeting the people, the part of your team that actually delivers uh, your products and services to your customers. And then the other half of that is uh, meeting your customers, is really understanding what they value. Because lots of times, 
you know, we think we know what we're doing well as a company or why people deal with us. Lots of times we kind of got that wrong. People deal with us for a completely different reason. So understanding the value that you create and then, you know, it's and lots of times you don't hear what you want to hear. And, you know, people. But I think if you have that relationship with both the people at your front line of your organization who are part of your team and with your customers, I think you can discover an awful lot about uh, your business. And I think the things you don't, you know, nobody likes conflict, you know, personnel reviews and things like that. You know, you'd much rather get on with the thrill of uh, running the business and figuring out new things. But, you know, I think as we've learned is that's the stuff you've got to teach yourself to, uh, to value. It's, you know, we talk about it as being courageous conversations because, you know, if you, uh, just like relationships, if you go for a long time without kind of expressing your true feelings, uh, you can really get off track. So it's, uh, well, as human beings, we don't necessarily like it. It's probably the most valuable thing that we do as leaders. A lot of people would say, will look at your 11 years with ATB as the CEO and say that you were very integral to that shift towards a uh, customer-centric value at ATB and uh, attitude with how your branches are run. Like even in the walls in the ATB, there's like a little uh, scribble. It's like email me, right? I think right. there's like a, about the values of ATB. Can you talk a bit about the motivation behind that? You know, I think in the very first instance, lots of times as companies, we deliver what we think we should deliver and it's not always the right thing sometimes you just need a little bit of a of adjustment you know like you know in a small town if transportation's a bit limited and you open your branch at 9:30 but there's just something else that's going on where you really should be opening at 9 like it's not a big big adjustment but you'll never find that out unless you're in touch with your customers you need to be able to hear them say, you know, I'd, anyway, you, you get that kind of contribution uh, from your customers, which really uh, helps you focus uh, your business. And for us, you know, we're a, you know, we're a pipsqueak on the banking um, kind of landscape. The big banks would be more than a trillion dollars, some of them in assets. You know, we're pretty big here. We're $55 billion, which is a lot. Um, and I think for a long time, you know, smallish banks or credit unions have this wannabe complex, like they want to be one of the big banks. And we spent a lot of time looking at mid-sized banks in the United States. Like in Canada, there's, you know, 10 or 15 banks, major banks. Um, in the United States, there's 5,000. There used to be 8,000 before the financial crisis. And so you can go um, and and really see that some of the highest performing banks are are relatively small. So, you know, and even at $55 billion, if you line us up amongst all the financial institutions in North America, I think we're about the 33rd biggest. So, so it's still, so what we uh, over time convinced ourselves that we were exactly the right size is if you're too small, you don't have the ability to invest in technology. You know, we're doing a lot of robotics right now and artificial intelligence, you know, to make our products better. And if you're too big, you know, it's just hard to see momentum. Everything you deal with is so, such a big, like we changed our entire 
IT system here. I mean, it nearly killed us as an organization. I'd say we kind of barely got through it. But if you're one of the biggest banks in Canada, it's like a 10-year program, and they just can't get to it. You know, it's just so, so uh, big. So, so, so that was a real breakthrough uh, for us is really figuring out uh, we might be exactly the right size to have enough money to invest to be really kind of leading uh, in a lot of areas, but not so big that we can still be relatively uh, quick. And we're relatively easy to deal with uh, as well. I mean, from a supplier's point of view, like if you're a, a little company, a fintech company, and you want an appointment with one of the big banks in Canada or whatever, you know, kind of good luck. Like there's just a lot of people talking to those people, and we're small. We're one postal, one uh, time zone in Canada. Yep. And so we kind of use that as a strategy, is rather than us doing all of the research and development. Like right now, we're looking at voice authentication, iris authentication, and fingerprint authentication. And we have little fintech companies work in their solutions, and what they get value from us is they get to work on real customers and stuff like that. And from us, uh, we get to see uh, what they're doing. So I think there's a way to be very, very stealth uh, about this and go very quickly in terms of uh, some of the, and it's not just the technology, it's the ability to deal with our customers better, do what they want, when they want, and how they want it. And, you know, people are the root of that, but it'll be technology that really powers the people's ability to do that yeah so i think from what i'm gathering um from that is essentially quality and not quantity and that allows you to be a little bit more nimble and better serving your customers that correct or yeah yeah? and i think you you know one of the things that we've created the analogy on the quality part is um is listening because one of the things you know, that our industry, and I've been part of it, so I'm talking about myself here, is we haven't listened very well as as banks. We're a little parental. You know, we tell you if your loan's approved or not, and we tell you if you can do this or not, and we have pretty strict hours. And, and so changing that up to really um, show that we were going to listen as an organization, as I said earlier, when you listen, you don't always hear the things that you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it does is set you apart. And I, and I think it's, it's not really big stuff you got to do. Like, for example, uh, my email is available. Um, you can go on our website and find it and you want to send me a note. It goes right. To, it doesn't go to some public affairs department yeah. or something like that. It goes to, uh, to me and I answer them. You know, I think it'd be a good tip. Go, go to any big company you can think of and right. go and find an email address. It's info at blah, blah, blah dot com. And so, so especially as banks, we feel quite um, like there's no personality to it. Uh, and, and so we feel very arbitrary and we feel kind of shuttered away. And so by saying that we listen and then actually listening and then making our people's you know, direct emails, direct numbers and stuff available. It just makes you a little bit different. People don't always want to use it. Yeah. Uh, but when they do, they don't feel frustrated. And I mean, I think um, 
that speaks a lot to how we got this interview, right? I mean, I, I was contacting straight to you. There was no EA, no right. uh, publicist, <laughs> which I was really surprised about that, you know, yeah. it was like a back and forth, right, with, you know, Dave Moe. <laughs> well, I think that's how, if, in anything, that's how you find opportunities. The more you get stuff filtered before it gets to you, there's somebody else deciding, is this a good opportunity, not a good opportunity in life in careers and all kinds of stuff is the more directly connected you are to the various inputs. I think that's how you succeed. You specifically had one of the highest CEO approval ratings in North America and ATB Financial was ranked the second best place to work in Canada. Can you talk about what attributes to a good workplace for their employees? Like, how did you kind of, right. you know, develop this atmosphere or this workplace? Actually, I taught my mom how to go on Glassdoor and vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of goes back to we're in the people business, and I think sometimes the banking industry forgets about that. We got great solutions. We got the best term deposit for you. We got the best investment rates for you. We got a great commercial mortgage for you. And, you know, nobody has ever sent me a Christmas card and said, Dave, man, have you ever got great mortgage terms? You know, <laughs> what they do is they send me a card and they say, you know, Jane was like the most amazing person. And they almost always talk about the fact she listened or she understood or she took the time to come to me. There's that's so we have, you know, we're this button down, straight up and down. We got the best products and we spend a lot of time developing and they're sophisticated products. So don't get me wrong that that's important. Um, but ultimately, I'll take great people and mediocre products any day, uh, right, as opposed to fabulous leading edge products and then not a very well executing uh, team member. So you know, quite early on, you know, right from our board of directors, Brian Heshey is, was the owner of Fountain Tire, and he was a customer and team member-centric person, and myself, and right down the organization, you know, we really came to the conclusion quickly that our success, because we, we can't be as big as the banks, other banks, but we can be different. And the only way we, the best way we thought we could be different is really um, have a team of people who who got it from a customer uh, point of view. And um, then, you know, we kind of high-graded the cookie jars. We started looking for people that we thought had the attributes to connect. Because you felt it, you know, it could be in a shoe store, your church, a team, you know, Dairy Queen, any place. When somebody connects with you, there's just something that happens. You kind of want to deal with that person. You'll find ways to deal with them. And the opposite, if you get some snobby person who kind of gives you the impression, oh, man, you shouldn't even be shopping here. I don't think you can afford anything in this store. You start to find reasons why not. To, so you're immediately, that's where it goes back to, you know, banking. You know, we have lots of workarounds in banking, but they all kind of disappear if you can get somebody who has made a connection. And it doesn't matter, like it's, the person depositing a check or making a withdrawal at our customer service line, it's every bit as important as the person doing our biggest uh, commercial mortgage. And in every one of those transactions, you know, we just we always talk to ourselves is that there's more going on than just depositing a check. Could be 
you know, the first royalty check you ever get for your podcasts or whatever, mm-hmm. your deposit, you're like, it's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. Like, it's not just, you know, $375. And so by making that uh, connection, you every time somebody deals with you, you're you're being different and you're, it, the products feel kind of customized to you. And, and they aren't really, but what's happening is somebody's kind of making an emotional connection with you. Right. And emotion and banking you know, the positive emotions don't always get associated with banking. Yeah, that was like, it was like a strange sentence, emotion and banking, emotional <laughs> banking. Um, we even use the word love. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, don't worry. I, next Christmas, I'll definitely send you a postcard about about the great mortgage <laughs> rates. Though. You sounded so sad when you said So you've been CEO of ATB during some of Alberta's most tumultuous like economic years. Um, I'm just going to name some events, and I kind of want you to tell us about your thoughts or your emotions at the time and maybe some lessons you learned. So first of all, you came on around right during the 2008 global financial crisis. Right. Yeah, that was a scary time. You know, it's, uh, you, know you look back at it, and, um, you know, I, I think what got us through, like, you know, without getting technical, we had something called asset-backed commercial paper, which is um, kind of owned throughout the economy. It was $15 billion of it. And Canada was the only place in the world that um, cleared that up. We got virtually 100 cents on the dollar uh, on that. Only place in the world. It went to zero everywhere else. Um, And I think um, our banks... Uh, acted like a banking system instead of individuals. And so, you know, there was a few banks, the big banks that had really none of it, weren't involved with it, and they, but they were part of the solution. So I think Canada saw itself as a banking uh, system. And I think the other thing I learned, Purdy Crawford was the guy who was our leader. We spent every, uh, every week in Toronto for a year uh, kind of working that through. And, uh, you know, a few things that I learned is no matter how many zeros there are, and there's a lot of zeros in 15 billion, uh, it's personal relationships uh, and integrity that uh, get you through. And so you could be talking about 10 bucks or $10 billion. It's exactly the same uh, issues. And the other thing that, in a way, I was disappointed in is to, like, to me, you're your word is your bond kind of thing. And uh, dealing with some of the huge, huge multinational banks from around the world, um, their word wasn't always their bond. So we spent a lot of time building those relationships. You know, the wheels would fall off the deal and you'd have to go and put them back on and stuff like that. And so Canada acted in a very uh, united way. And and I'm really proud uh, to... I had a very small part in it, but um, I was very proud of the Canadian group that worked with banks from around the world and and got people's money back. It was important. How about in the 2015 royalty review? Right. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, that's something you wouldn't trade for anything. There's not many times in your life uh, you get to do just one thing. And so our board of directors, when I was asked, kind of gave me a leave of absence so I I didn't work here at all the team kind of just stepped up and all I did we had a great 
crew, Peter Terzakian is one of the people of really the brains of the operation in terms of uh, what we came up with. But it was just a, uh, it was a challenge uh, for sure. And I'm, you know, I think lots of times we complain about stuff and, you know, talk radio's got all the solutions and, you know, <laughs> you can figure something out. The world's not very black and white. And so it was an opportunity to study a very, very complicated issue and try and not only come up with a very sophisticated and complicated uh, solution, underneath it very much was, but like anything in this world, you need to be able to explain it to people. And so, you know, I think in as much as there was a very elegant solution and companies and the government are happy with it to this very day. Um, probably of equal importance was uh, the ability that we had to talk to Albertans about it. Because when stuff's really complicated, you just feel like you're getting taken for a ride. And and so I think what the conversation with Albertans was, was, you know, here's the things you need to understand about it. And then we kind of develop principles. So you don't really know how the royalty system works. And, and well, well, you don't really even know how your car works. But if you drove your car here today, you know, you need to know things like where's the brakes, where's the gas, you know, when I turn, what should happen. Uh, but you don't have a clue how your, you know, hydraulic systems work or the internal combustion a part of it. And, and that's the same with royalties is, you know, people complicated it so much, you know, the only, the, so we came up with and we talked to Albertans and the things Albertans, you know, need to know, for example, are, you know, do we share the risk with companies? Yes, we want to. We don't want companies to take no risk. And and when oil prices go up, uh, should royalties go up? Yeah, we should share again in that. Uh, should the development of our resources be environmentally friendly? Yes. And so what we ended up with was five principles that Alberta, it was an amazing unit, not unanimous, but it was, there was amazing convergence when you talk to tens of thousands of people on what those principles were. And then rather than explain the absolute detail of the royalty system, you just had to be able to say, you know what, this Albertan said these five things are important and here's the deal. You get a tick in all of them. And so, so then all of a sudden people could have an opinion on royalties because it does this, it's environmentally sensitive, it changes with prices and so on and so forth. And so yes, I can support that without having to understand all of the details, how your car engine works. Right. Um, so how about the 2016 Fort McMurray fires? That, how did any emotions that, uh, or lessons you'll learn from that? Yeah, it's interesting. We, we had the Slave Lake fire, and then we had the floods. Yeah. And then we had the Fort McMurray fires. And so, you know, we almost got too good at as a province dealing with kind of tragedy like that. But I think the most... I think that'd be one of my proudest moments as, you know, a leader or at ATB is, you know, we got lots of accolades for how the organization reacted. We never had a meeting. We never made a 
decision. We didn't sit around the executive table and say we should do that. The organization just went into gear. Like it knew what it had to do. And, you know, like with Fort McMurray, somebody on their own initiative, like almost instantly said, we got to find the 75 people because it wasn't that easy. And, and so, so, so they just, I don't you don't even know how it happened. They built yeah. a little task force and they had a room for, and they just, they were, they found every one of those uh, people. And then somebody else said, well, you know, let's, we, we need to get them all some cash, yeah. you know, cause it was a time where, you know, you could, you might've left your wallet Yes. at home or whatever it was. And so they developed a system and they got everybody 5,000 uh, bucks. And so it was little things like that. And then it was, you know, out of the blue came a program for anybody who had a mortgage with us is that we would, you know, postpone interest and principal payments for a yeah. year and stuff like that. And, and I think sometimes... You know, I'm not going to slag lawyers too too much here, but, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, you get into a room with a bunch of executives and then you get the lawyers and then all of a sudden everybody becomes cautious and they're, they're thinking about it too much. And I think sometimes in emergencies like that, you know, it's just like first aid, the, you know, somebody comes across an accident and they just immediately start doing CPR or something like that. I think... You know, the fact that our organization could immediately just start doing CPR, like, it, it's a great thing that people felt safe enough uh, mm -hmm. to do that. And that's your very best response. Right. It's like playing Trivial Pursuit. The first answer <laughs> that comes to mind is yeah. the best one you got. And don't worry, I'm not a lawyer, so you can say you're lawyers <laughs> as much as you, as you would like. No one here on our team is a lawyer, so. <laughs> um, I mean, people don't become one of the highest approved CEOs in North America overnight. Um, were there any moments over your career, not just at ATB, that you kind of felt immense self-doubt that you think maybe like, am I doing this, you know, the right thing? I'm leading this company, this bank of like 5,600 people. Like we're dealing with a lot of lives because you said $55 billion is like a lot of money. Right. Did you ever have any moments where you have self-doubt? Yeah, I think the times that you feel the very the most confident is when you're not doing it like the place is doing it they're you know doing a great job of investment returns or gathering deposits or making loans or something like that and then it feels like you know that success is shared a bunch and so you so you feel pretty confident the times where you have the most self-doubt is when it starts to feel like you're doing it all yourself and, and then there's only you and we all know our own limitations and you know when I have 5,500 people to rely on sky's the limit you know somewhere in that group of people we got the talent to do whatever ever we need and when it's when, when something starts to back into it's only me I know my own uh, limitations and thing and then I think sometimes we you know for all the right reasons we try and take on the responsibility that, you know, I'll show the leadership here and I'll take this on. And it's really the wrong thing to do. Wait, at that point, you need to take it on, but you need to spread out the group. So I think that, you know, we did 
our new banking system supposed to cost $180 million and it costing $300 million plus, supposed to take two years, took four years uh, to do it. So that's embarrassing. Like, you know, everybody says, well, it's just a technology project, but you never think it's going to happen to you. Um, and so, you know, that was one that, you know, the way we got through that, because just imagine if you're on our board of directors and I tell you it's going to cost 180 and then I tell you it's going to cost 200 and then I tell you it's going to cost 240 and then it just keeps yeah, going. Yeah. And at some point you say, let's just get rid of this guy and we'll find somebody who can do this or, or let's shut down the project or whatever. And I think, you know, I think what we realized we had to, rather than pull it all in, we had to just strengthen our leadership. So we put a new person, Curtis Stange, actually the new CEO of ATV. I don't think we would have got the whole thing across the finish line. And Curtis doesn't, you know, when he started, I mean, now he does, but he didn't know anything about IT. Um, and so what what we were doing is strengthening our resources. Mm -hmm. We're kind of widening the circle. So we involve the board. The board's completely informed of what we're doing. Our management team is all, you know, we're meeting regularly as a team, and then we put a really strong leader in. And I think that's... So, yeah, for a while there, I felt pretty alone. Like, you know, if anybody's going to take the bullet, it's, you know, you'd want it to be me. I wouldn't because there were lots of good people. But what yeah. I hadn't given them, you know, was we just hadn't had a broad enough decision-making capacity and we hadn't had the right leadership in the program. And once you get to that, that loneliness starts to, because uh, you're, you know, we don't just share success. you got to yeah. share some of the problems that you have, too. Before ATB, you were the CEO of Vancity, uh, one of uh, Canada's largest credit unions. Um, while you were there, you actually also participated in Al Gore's climate project boot camp, right? Right. How was Al Gore? <laughs> How was working with him? <laughs> I think I learned a two-step with Al and Tipper Gore. And actually, we were also I was also in a group with uh, Cameron Diaz oh, yeah. as part of that. and. I don't know, after spending a week with us, she dumped Justin Timberlake, so I don't know. <laughs> My wife doesn't think there's a causal relationship yeah. there. But uh, no, it was, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. I put my name in for that. There was thousands of people applied and not very many people. And I got picked because Al Gore was pretty smart. He had, you know, I don't know if these are exact numbers, but he kind of had a third of the group was kind of university types. A third of the group were kind of like that star-studded, mm -hmm. you know, the Cameron Diaz's of the world and stuff like that. And the other third of the group were uh, business people. So he was kind of cross-pollinating uh, information. But the main reason I wanted uh, to do it, and I think it's still true to this very day, is both sides of this debate fib. You know, like... You know, the people who are trying to defend the environment, you know, feel pressed to, you know, break through, to convince people, and they warp the truth. And I think there's people that are defending industry and whatever, and they can't be, feel like they can't be heard, and they're not getting a fair shake and stuff like that. And they start to warp the truth. And, and the way you warp the truth... Uh, well, I mean, there's some people that out and out fib. Of course, yeah, yeah. Okay, but there's very, very well-intentioned people at both ends of that debate that the way you warp it is you just start leaving out facts. And so, you know, I can, you know, how many times have you heard I got good news and I got bad news? And, 
you know, it's the same thing as, yes, we know that global warming is caused by this, this, and this, but yes, we're also not sure about this piece. But they start to leave out that we're not sure about this piece. And then industry says, you know, we're doing this, this, and this, and this, but they kind of leave out the fact that I only haven't really figured out this part. And so what the whole Al Gore thing, what I insisted we do is do the presentation, but we always left an hour at the end to let people ask questions. Because I don't know about you, but in that debate, even some of the Al Gore material, anyway, I'm just not sure what to believe. Because mm -hmm. I don't think people are very credible at, at either end of this spectrum. And so it's a super important issue, you know. And I'm very confident we'll solve it. Mankind is, you know, we have a way of solving you know we had problems with the ozone layer and you don't hear anything about that anymore we've kind of figured that out so i'm confident we'll get there but i think the only way we'll get there is if people smarten up and have more of a balanced approach on both ends uh, of the spectrum so we start to have a discussion about that isn't a blame game mm -hmm. uh it's just uh you know, these are the things that we got to do and we got to start doing them. And no, they won't solve it all at once. And no, it's not, there's no silver bullet. And no, no one person is, you know, completely to blame. But you got to get rid of that and just start working down uh, the issues. And it's, you know, I think what people will see is it's good for the economies of the world. It, it will be a good thing for the world. It's not going to be just a financial drag on the world. For future CEOs or CEOs today, what advice do you have for them to balancing that responsibility they have to the board and to shareholders and balancing the responsibility to the environment and the people? What advice do you have for them? You know, I, I think, like, if you believe you need to kind of rape and pillage the environment a little bit in order to be successful, mm -hmm. and so you're trying to bridge those two, mm -hmm. I think you should get out of the business. Yeah. You know, I, I think what you know the more enlightened version of capitalism going forward yeah. you know is sustainability and so i have to figure out a way uh, to make my company uh, more successful uh, by being respectful of our environment being respectful of the people who work for me and connecting with our customers and it's just it's shortcuts I don't have the technology right now, so I don't scrub this, and so I put out, and you know, expenses are tight, so I don't want to have this benefit, or I want to cut out schooling for people, or something like that. Those are just that's just lazy. Yeah. You know, I think if you if you work hard at figuring out how to scrub what you need to scrub, how to educate the people, because because I think then there's a pitch to your customers that I'm scrubbing this and I'm doing this and. So maybe I got a bit of a premium product for you. And so I'm not forced to just sell on price. You know, it's tricky. And, and, I, and I'm not saying it's easy. None of those things are easy. But nothing's easy that's good. And so I think the very most sustainable businesses we have are ones that act responsibly across all of those uh, pillars. Not one, not two, all of them. And... Ultimately, I think you can start to see some of the most successful companies in the world are doing exactly that. For our last and most important question, Vancouver or Edmonton? Because <laughs> I know you're going on vacation tomorrow, yeah, Vancouver, right. right? Today. So, yeah. I mean, 
Well, we have uh, kids that live in Vancouver, and we have kids that live in Calgary, and we live in Edmonton. So we kind of got that three-legged stool right now, but definitely cheer for the Oilers. (laughs) (laughs) When I'm Calgary, (laughs) love those flames. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and have a happy holidays. Yeah, Yeah. same to you. Thank you so much. That was our conversation with Dave Mowat. As our team walked out of the ATP building, every single employee who walked by us said hi to Dave, and Dave said hi back. Even though Dave has been retired, he still recognized almost every single one of their names. Postacle Chronicles is hosted and produced by me, Matt Falk. Rostislav Soroko was the co-producer for this episode. Our staff includes Alice Coombs, and Kasun Medigadera. Special thanks to Bryce Grimes and Marco Falk. Our main theme song is called Last Energy for the Day by Loyalty Freak Music, and there are other credits on our website. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating, share us, follow us on the social medias. Thank you for listening. We will see you soon.